0: This is Rabbi Shama Engelmeyer and welcome to episode 22 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. I don't consider milk-fed veal to be kosher. Inevitably, when I tell someone that, he or she would ask, veal is cow's meat, Rabbi, and a cow is kosher. What the question tells me is that most people have the wrong idea of what kosher means, and that goes double for the rabbis who certify milk-fed veal as kosher. There's more to kosher meat than the kind of animal it is or whether it's slaughtered in a kosher manner. There are far more important considerations that must be taken into account. In fact, those considerations, and not what animal it is or how it was slaughtered, are really what the kosher laws are about. The kosher laws are not about what we kill and how we kill it. They're about how we care for and respect all creatures great and small. This week's Torah portion contains some clues in this regard. And so the topic for this week is the animal world and our responsibilities to it. I'd like to introduce you to two people who not only understand what those responsibilities are, but act on them in their lives. Ginger Britt Daniels and Mitchell Sonners live in Southern California. And I'm honored to be a member of their family, a family, by the way, that's filled with caring people. Welcome to you both. I know the fires are raging in the north, but how are you both being affected where you are, especially considering that you live in a very wooded area yourselves? At this point in time,
1: things are stable, but it's always keep on your guard because you never know when the next potential fire could start. The air quality is not that great from fires in northern Cal and some in southern Cal, but living
0: where we live, this is what we go through and you know that going in. Well, I hope the fires don't start up in Southern California, and I pray for everyone's safety in the North and the South. Ginger, how many dogs do you two own, and where do they come from?
2: We own four, and they are all rescues. The first one, the oldest one, Gracie, Mitchell rescued with her sister off the side of the freeway about seven, eight years ago.
1: Yes, they were two little girls running down through an industrial part of downtown. They would have been killed by semis. And I chased them down, took a lot of work, and I grabbed them. And one of the best decisions I made, they have been the most amazing dogs I've had. And I've
0: had lots of stray dogs in my life. Tell me about some of your experiences running across a busy freeway. And why would you do such a dangerous thing? I've done it
1: a couple of times on the Santa Monica Freeway in Los Angeles at rush hour, across 10 lanes of traffic, back and forth, over a mile or two of chasing good thing I'm a runner. I value their lives because animals give us so much in return. The dogs are scared to death and they would have been killed on the freeway. And I just felt it was my calling to rescue them. Most of them I've kept. A few of them I have not. I didn't have the space and already had a lot of dogs. So I don't know. It's my calling. Well, you also have
0: two Dalmatians. How did you end up getting two Dalmatians?
2: So we actually wanted to. We wanted a boy and a girl, and they they came up when we were looking. I've had other Dalmatians. Yes which I've
1: rescued before, and I found them to be the most amazing animals, uh, dogs. And we had been looking for a long time through the rescue organizations. Yes. And these two just showed up through the ASPCA website, which is a great organization, at a kill shelter in the San Fernando Valley. And the next morning, the two of us raced out their first thing. And there they were. They and, were adorable together. And they would have separated them if they had to to save them both. And there was no way we were going to break up the pair. They, they are a pair. Ginger,
0: I know that you prefer shelters to picking up strays.
2: Mostly for safety reasons. But I would do any old thing to save an animal.
0: And this question is addressed to both of you. Have you any message to give to our listeners?
2: Keep your eyes and ears peeled if you see an animal wandering on the side of the road. Be safe, pull over, make sure that they have a tag. If they do and they're by themselves, make sure they get returned to their owners because we have so much, well, not right now. Usually we have a lot of traffic here in Southern California and they get hit all the time. So it's important to help them get to safety and to give them a home if they need one, whether you end up keeping them or you end up fostering or taking them to a shelter. The shelters are really good places to also adopt. If you need a dog, you shouldn't go and get one from a breeder, I think. That's just my personal preference. You should save the ones that need moms and dads.
1: The dogs give you so much love, unconditional love in return. Yes. And the ones that I've rescued off the street know what their fate was somehow. And they are so appreciative of the fact that they're now in a safe environment. They don't have to worry about where their food's coming from, or if they find food, another animal will steal it, or they're going to get killed. Right. Um, I've, some of the ones I've rescued have been hit that had to go immediately to my vet to have surgery on a jaw,
0: surgery on a hip. But they know where they are and where they've come from. Well, for the record, the things that you you two do for your four-legged family members, and I know you consider them as family members, it's a mitzvah of the highest order, a very Jewish thing to do, which is what I'm about to expound upon in the rest of the podcast. I only wish more people were like the two of you. Us too, yes. We'll come back to Ginger and Mitchell later, but now let's get to the rest of the podcast. As I said, this week's Torah portion, Ki-Tetze, contains some clues to our responsibilities to the non-human creatures that share this planet with us. The first clue is a commandment requiring us to chase a mother bird far enough away so that she can't see us stealing the eggs or her fledglings from out of her nest. The Torah tells us why, and in a very pointed way. In a number of places, the Torah urges us to observe God's mitzvot, God's commandments, so that we may live long lives, as it puts it. In only three instances, though, is the promise of long life associated with a specific mitzvah. One of those is the twice-repeated commandment to honor our parents, quote, that your days may be long, unquote. The second instance is the one about a mother bird, You shall surely send off the mother so that it may go well with you and you will enjoy length of days. The Torah is very clear on this. There's no difference between a human mother or any other kind. Human mothers have feelings. Mother birds have feelings. Humans or birds, those feelings must be respected. Goat have feelings. You shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. The Torah tells us that not once but three times. Even if the goat doesn't know we're cooking its child in the very milk meant to nourish it, we know we're doing it, and that's bad enough. At another point, the Torah tells us, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain with its mother for seven days, and from the eighth day on, it shall be acceptable as an offering. Why must we wait until the eighth day? Because animals have feelings. The mother is done weaning the calf by the eighth day. She won't be looking to nurse her child. But she will be looking for that child for those first seven days. Mothers have feelings, even cow mothers and goat mothers. This week we're also told that we may not yoke together an ox and a donkey. What it really means is that we may not yoke a weak animal to a strong one, because the weak animal is likely to be injured or die because of it. Then there's the law this week requiring us to shelter an animal that's gone astray until its owner can be found. And yet another law that says that when an animal has fallen, presumably under a heavy load, we have to help its owner, whether friend or foe, to get the animal back up on its feet. It doesn't matter who the owner is, it's the animal's welfare that counts. These laws are all part of a whole category of halacha, of Jewish law. A category known as tsar ba'alei haim, causing harm to living creatures. Not only must we cause them no harm, we have to go to some lengths to protect them from being harmed. I've mentioned this category in previous podcasts, by the way, because the Torah takes very seriously the welfare of animals or birds. Our sages of blessed memory even set aside rabbinic-ordained Shabbat proscriptions to save the animals from suffering because, quote, the law against pain to animals and, by extension, birds is biblical, unquote, and thus takes precedence over any rabbinic notions of what may or may not be done on Shabbat. This even includes unloading a pack animal that's laboring under too great a burden, according to Maimonides, the Rambam. The sages even went so far as to prohibit a person from owning an animal, or a bird for that matter, unless he or she could properly care for it. And they required that animals be given their dinner before we humans get ours. They also banned the injuring or killing of animals, and by extension birds, for no valid reason. Based on these Tzar Ba'alei laws, for an animal to be kosher, our first consideration has to be how it was treated while it lived. Anything that can harm the animal is forbidden. To make certain the animal was not mistreated while it lived, an autopsy of sorts has to be performed on it after it's been slaughtered, which is why kosher meat costs more than non-kosher meat. Any signs of abuse, any hint of any kind that the animal was maltreated a broken bone, a torn windpipe, automatically disqualifies it from being considered kosher. Slaughtering the animal itself must be done in a way that gives it absolutely no pain, and making sure of that is a very exacting process. The knife that's used is called the chalaf. The knife has to be long and thin, and it can't be pointed in any way. It has to be up to twice as wide as the animal's neck, but it can't be so heavy that just the weight alone would cause the animal any distress. It also has to be completely clean, and above all, it has to be razor sharp. The slaughterer, known as a shokhet, has to run his thumbnail across the edge of the blade before each kill to make sure there are no nicks in the blade, because even a single nick can lead to pain for the animal. If a single nick is found, the knife has to be resharpened or it has to be set aside altogether. Think paper cut. The actual cutting is painless and the hurt comes only several seconds later. In the case of a properly slaughtered animal, death comes before any pain could be felt. The killing itself has to be done in a very quick and precise manner and the cut has to be absolutely smooth. If any tissue is torn, the animal isn't considered kosher because tearing causes pain. Non-kosher slaughterhouses don't operate that way. They don't have such involved rules. Dr. Temple Grandin, the preeminent expert in the field, is an outspoken defender of kosher slaughter over the non-kosher varieties. Grandin, who isn't Jewish, by the way, is professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She's also a consultant to the livestock industry on animal behavior and herself is a designer of humane slaughter systems. Among other things, she says, is that non-kosher slaughterhouses stun the animals before killing them, which is supposedly more humane, but is not, because the stunning releases large amounts of epinephrine, which, Grandin says, does cause pain. All that being said, why do I say that milk-fed veal is not kosher and never can be? From the day of its birth, the young calf is locked in a pen with more animals than that pen can hold. This keeps the calf from being able to move in any way because any exercise could make the meat less tender. The pen is indoors and in the dark because any light, and especially sunlight, would toughen the calf's meat. That also means the calf doesn't even have access to fresh air. And the calf is given special feed. There's nothing nourishing about that feed. It's specially designed for one purpose, to fatten the calf for greater profitability. I don't care how you kill that calf or how many blessings you make when you do. That animal is being mistreated, cruelly so, and that makes that animal trafe. period. It's still not kosher in my eyes and in the eyes of many other rabbis. This is a very superficial look at only one small segment of what kosher really means, but it's the most important segment. Look, God didn't want humans to kill animals in the first place. We're all supposed to be vegetarians. Quote, And God said, See, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree on which there is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for food. Unquote. This applies to the lower life forms too. Quote, And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to every thing that creeps upon the earth where there is life. I have given every single herb for food. Unquote. But neither we nor the birds and animals were content eating fruits, vegetables, and seeds. We all started killing for food, which led down a slippery slope to killing, period. That bloodlust was why God decided to bring the Great Flood. After the Flood, God makes a concession. Humans can eat meat, provided they recognize that they're taking a life, and provided that they take that life humanely. When Israel came along, hundreds of years later, he gave us stricter laws about meat than he gave anyone else. The purpose of these laws is to make killing animals and birds for food much more difficult and to enhance our respect for all life, human or not, because we're supposed to be God's kingdom of priests and holy nation and we're supposed to teach the world by example how a moral and ethical life should be lived. The kosher laws aren't ends in and of themselves. They're meant to call attention to all of the Torah's laws regarding how we treat animals and birds and how we must protect them. Keeping kosher isn't about how we kill animals and birds. It's about how we help the animals and birds live. In fact, in Leviticus, we're even told that unless we create some kind of sacred cover for doing so, killing an animal for food is akin to an act of murder. In Moses' day, that sacred cover was bringing the animal to the tabernacle to be cooked as a supposed offering. Today, that sacred cover is eating meat that's passed all the rules to certify it as kosher. If that message that the kosher laws are all about, how we help the animals to live, doesn't enter into our heads when we bite into a kosher hamburger, by the way, we're missing the point about why that hamburger has to be kosher. We've helped kill an animal by buying that meat without a sacred purpose, even if it is kosher. Keeping kosher in this sense becomes a sign of the purpose of Jewish living, to create a world in which all life is respected, no life is jeopardized, and the concept of justice extends to all of God's creatures, human and otherwise. Now some of you probably think this is nonsense. After all, God also commanded us to kill all of those nice animals and birds as sacrifices to him. Actually, no, you didn't. We forced it on him. God never wanted anything to do with sacrifices. The prophets tell us as much. The prophet Hosea, for example, quotes God as saying, I desired loyal love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Jeremiah quotes God as saying, I did not speak to your fathers, nor did I command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Keeping kosher isn't about health or any other of the popular notions out there. It's about loving God and obeying his voice. And that voice, as we see in this week's Torah portion and the Torah's other legislation, tells us that we must respect all creatures on earth that have a breath of life in them, that we must care for them, that we must protect them, and that we may not abuse them. That's why milk veal is in kosher as I see it. And it's also why eating kosher meat, in my humble opinion, is the only moral and ethical way to eat meat. This is Rabbi Shammai Mayer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai, www.shammai.org www.shamai.org, and email me, please. My thanks to Ginger Daniels and Mitchell Saunders for their input. I want to wish you both an enjoyable Shabbat and a safe one. And you as well. Yes. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.